if you have different countries that have their own fiat currencies, then if one country inflates more than another country, then it is bound that the currency of this country will tend to fall against the currency of another. Now, no government likes to see that this becomes a permanent process. That is, its currency falls all the time against the currency of other countries, because then the danger is that people might simply drop the currency that continuously falls and adopt the currency that rises in value. Hello and welcome to Noted Bitcoin Podcast, episode 0.11. I'm Michael Goldstein, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Pierre Rochard. And we have a very special guest, Trace Mayer. How are you doing, Trace? Yeah, wonderful to be here. Uh, uh, we've been in the space together for a long time, so this is this is going to be fun. It's been a very long time. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, you're, you're a sort of uh, undersung hero uh, of Bitcoin, uh, for me personally, back in 2012, when I got really obsessed with Bitcoin, I was watching videos of yours on YouTube that really got me clued into the crypto anarchists and cypherpunks and just understanding why Bitcoin was so great. The the flip that had switched for me was understanding B- Bitcoin as gold you send through the internet. And here we had an expert on you know the gold standard and, and gold as an, as an investment, uh, having been talked talking about Bitcoin since it was worth a nickel, uh, which even when I got in was, you know, absurd to think about. Yeah, I suppose. uh, Well, I have been around a long time and kind of an intellectual thought leader for pretty much everybody that, that does publicly talk about it. And we really do have to have that philosophical foundation to understand why we're doing what we're doing. And because this is an equity based asset instead of a debt based asset, we have to have hodlers of last resort instead of lenders of last resort. And so, you know, I guess that kind of comes with the territory, uh, you know, having been a hodler of last resort since it was a nickel, <laughs> uh, at least publicly. And uh, and it's just a completely different way of looking at it than some of the other people uh, might have. You know, some people look at it merely for the speculation in terms of short-term gains, or, or they look at it as, you know, purely transactional currency, which is additional network effects in my opinion but at the end of the day you have to have the the hodler of last resort that first speculation network effect and to really buy into it to become a hodler of last resort you have to understand the philosophy and that's your foundation that's your your ideological foundation for why you're allocating capital this way Absolutely. I agree with all of that. Uh, I'm curious, you know, with you specifically, I don't think I've ever heard this story and would be interested uh, to hear it if you want to share is, uh, you know, where where did you get your ideological influences? I have a feeling that they're very much the same uh, as many of mine. Um, and also just, you know, how did you get interested in Bitcoin specifically? Yeah. So, I mean, the story actually goes back a long ways. I've I've always really liked money. And that's because when I was very young, my mother felt it was very important for me to learn about money. And I wanted a bicycle when I was about five. And my father asked me how I was going to pay for it. Uh, so I've got, 
you know, an intellectual curiosity mixed with entrepreneurship that came from wanting something and not just having it given to me. And so I went out and collected cans and, and sold them to the recycling. And I sold Otter Pops to construction workers. And, it, and I was pretty creative. My dad, he was doing his MBA at the time. And he asked me, he was going to give me some business advice. So he's asking me like, how much do you sell them for? And I was like, well, they're, they're 10 cents a piece or two for a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, shouldn't they be three for a quarter? And I kind of molded over in my head and looked at them in all sincerity and said, but then I'd lose a nickel. <laughs> and so, you know, being savvy entrepreneur, uh, asymmetric knowledge, or at least the way I guess I looked at it, I, I suppose it didn't fool the, the construction workers, right? But uh, they were helpful to a young kid trying to buy a bike, dragging a little red wagon with a cooler behind him. And you know, so I followed this even into high school, and that's where I played some online games. And in the process, you know, I learned lots of lessons about exchange rate and collectibles because people liked shields or swords in the game, and I, I preferred dollars. But you know, I figured out how to get people their shields and their swords, and and I would get very large checks, you know, and I made lots of money uh, in the game. But it, I learned so many lessons about inflation and virtual currencies and uh, collectibles in general and through, through actual entrepreneurial experience and, you know, just doing it. And so, you know, and I also, you know, studied a lot of math and computer science and Napster and BitTorrent were all happening at the same time. And I was playing around with encryption with PGP and email and sitting at the feet of people like Dr. Back and Phil Zimmerman, uh, you know, as a young high schooler. And then, you know, studied accounting. And then uh, in law school, I had an opportunity uh, to take a, an American legal history class. And since I liked money, uh, and I'd, I'd been talking it over with my mom, we needed to write a basically a 50, 60 page scholarly paper for our, our class. And I decided to write it on the history of money and currency in American law. Uh, and having done an undergrad in accounting and having been interested in money, I figured I'd do that instead of the slave cases or something, you know, because it was pre-Civil War and it was from Magna Carta to Civil War era. And so I, I started doing my research and I couldn't find very much academic literature at all on this topic. And it's very surprising because it's actually in the Constitution in Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1. And I, I, about halfway through the semester, I'm starting to run out of time and I need to be doing my research and I try to be diligent and persistent and not just, you know, run around at the last minute procrastinating because that just doesn't work very well in law school. And so I went to the professor and was like, I can't seem to find information on this topic. Am I incompetent? Can you help me at least start the research? And he being a PhD in history and an attorney, you know, took about a took about a week and he went to do research on the topic and he couldn't find very much in the academic literature either. And he, and he came back and he was like, look, if you can't find stuff, uh, then you're going to have to change your topic and you probably need to do it within the next week or so. And so my back's up against the wall. It's like, I don't want to write about anything else. <laughs> I want to write about this. It's interesting. And somehow I, came across Dr. Vieira's Pieces of Eight. 
And Dr. Vieira, he's got four degrees from Harvard, PhD in chemistry, PhD, uh, a law degree, practices before the U.S. Supreme Court. And this pieces of aid, it's like two books that are that thick, um, you know, three, four inches thick each. They're 5,500 legal citations, 1,800 pages. It's the magnum opus on American monetary jurisprudence. And I was like, how in the world do we have this and yet nothing in the academic literature? Why has this topic been so censored? I, I mean, it, it was just baffling to me. And eventually, you know, I, wrote, I finished writing the paper, did everything, learned an incredible amount about the role of gold in our law and in the history behind what has happened with that. And eventually, you know, because I was so curious why this had been hidden in the memory hole, uh, that I, I kept sniffing around even well after uh, that class, and I ran into the Austrian School of Economics. And I ran into Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard and voraciously devoured their work. And I was like, holy cow, like all of this has been censored because basically to prop up ideologically a fiat currency, fractional reserve banking monetary system. But the economic establishment has been completely co-opted in the process of doing that. And so, you know, I... So to get to your, your question, like the real torchbearers, you know, have been people like Dr. Vieira and Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard because they carried the flame of sound money and this ideology in the darkest of times, you know, when Hitler and Stalin and Roosevelt and Lenin uh, made holding gold illegal. And so then... I ran in. I also ran into GATA, which is the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, and I got to have breakfast with Dr. Vieira before he gave his 2008 address. And you know, I was someone asked him a question in his Q and A, and they were like, you know, well, why why do this? Because it looked pretty bleak. You know, it looked really really bleak with the financial crisis, with how much gold had been censored, with the lack of ideological understanding of sound money, with the infringement that means in terms of civil liberties and everything. It looked really, really bleak. And someone asked the question like, well, why do you do this? And Dr. Vieira was like, because I don't want to live in 1956 Czechoslovakia with a boot on my neck. So I'm going to do everything I can about it. And Two years ago, I ran into Bill Murphy, who had founded GATA, and you have to understand, when, when he first started talking about this stuff in 1999 with GATA, which is a 501c3 for human rights on the sound money topic, he, di he did one interview on CNBC, and then they totally blackballed him and never had him on again. And after his interview, and Bill, Bill played professional football professional NFL football, but he's also a really bright guy. And, and the other GATA guys are like Harvard attorneys and they're very bright, but, but he's in a park and this guy breaks his jaw with like a rock and a sack and tells him to shut up and not talk about this stuff. And, you know, so, so, you know, I had breakfast with Dr. Vieira. He's like, look, I don't want to live with a boot on my neck, so I'm going to do everything I can about it. And so then you know, this is like this is like June 2008, and I had my Run to Gold blog, but it was just in its very infancy. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to be like these guys. 
<laughs> and so, you know, that's one of the reasons. So I talked a lot about gold and sound money and all of those things. And then when the time was right, I was the first person to start publicly talking about Bitcoin and have done it at, at significant risk to my own self, you know, because that's just what comes with the territory. But it's part of this ideological understanding and staking out monetary sovereignty. And we are, you know, we're effectively like the founding fathers of this digital information age. And we're laying down property rights in software code, just like we've laid down search and seizure rights with PGP encryption. What I really honed in on was um, the, the security aspect of it in terms of this distributed consensus. And so, and then I also, you know, realized like if the assertion that if it were actually able to do that, then the scarcity that came with it, you know, I already, because of this ideological foundation was able to very quickly collect, connect, correct, uh, connect all of those dots together um, and kind of see where it would go and what its destiny would be, especially with protocols getting entrenched in the network effects uh, that take place from them. So how, how does this feed into the current controversy, which is that we have memes, basically, that are being repeated about Bitcoin being a store of value and altcoins being a medium of exchange? I find these t phrases, the way they're used, to be enraging because to me, money is all three of those things, unit of account, medium of exchange, and store of value simultaneously. Like I don't think that they can be so cleanly separated as memes or as uh, ideologies that people are putting forth. Yeah, well, I think it just shows a lack of uh, large picture vision when you're because what what we're really looking at is the world is rethinking what money is. And it's either going to be gold, it's going to be the dollar, or it's going to be something else, likely a cryptocurrency, which is, you know, an internet protocol. And but these internet protocols, they have many different use cases besides only currency. And, you know, that's where, you know, I, I've kind of put forth the thought leadership, why do we hire Bitcoin? And I've settled on these seven network effects and we can pretty much put all these different use cases into these seven network effects, you know, speculation, merchants, consumers, miners or security, developers, financialization, world reserve currency. And so when we're, it, it's not, I mean, at the end of the day, like you're, you're going to be battling over different territory in these different network effects, but you get an exponentially reinforcing effect among the network effects is you're able to apply them with a particular protocol. And so Bitcoin, for example, you know, we're just in the first speculation network effect right now. And, and yet we have very, very tender roots going down like CME futures that give us this link between the sixth network effect of financialization and speculation. But it also reinforces the second and third network effects of merchants and consumers. And what do I mean by that? Well, if we're able to actually scale up fast, instant transactions with Lightning Network, then large merchants can hedge the exchange rate risk using the CME futures. So now we've got first, second, third, and sixth network effects all exponentially reinforcing each other. And, and like, do you really think you're going to have a Monero CME future or a or a Bitcoin Cash, Bcash, CME future anytime soon. I mean, it's just not like, no. <laughs> and so, I mean, at the end of the day, there there's a massive competition going on. And, 
you know, it's going to be survival of the fittest, not just the fittest pr- protocol among protocols, but protocols relative to all other assets that are out there also, whether it's Federal Reserve notes, yen, euros, or gold, silver, platinum, whatever it is. And like trying to, you know, taking, it's, getting so boxed in where you only see through a tiny keyhole instead of seeing the large overall picture, I think that is going to lead to a lot of asymmetric knowledge. And then people are going to make incorrect economic calculation as a result of it. But hey, that's that's where people get profits and losses. You calculate correctly, you got profits. You calculate incorrectly, you get losses. Yeah, that's spot on. And you also, I think you made a really important point there that, uh, you know, earlier we were talking about 2012, 2013, and how early you got in, how early we got in. Now, at the time when, when I got involved in 2013, I felt like I was like the last person to the party. Uh, and... Now I, I see new people coming in who feel the same way. And I have to emphasize to them that you're super, super early right now. Uh, and despite all the progress we've made, despite where the price is, uh, it's still very early days. Yeah, I mean, I've got a 50, 60 year vision for how this is going to roll out. And we're slightly ahead of schedule, but not really that much. And if you go back and look at some of my interviews that I did five, six years ago, it's all playing out, just like my interviews <laughs> laid it out. I laid out the case. Uh, one that I really like is with Robert Wenzel from the economicpolicyjournal.com. And he's still like very antagonistic towards Bitcoin. And we did this interview when it was $5. So, I mean, it's one thing if you miss out because you're interested in ice skating or puppies. It's a totally different thing if you miss out because you're interested in Fed policy and economics and then you have a Bitcoin expert on your show when it's $5 and you have a relatively open mind at the time. And then for whatever reason, you you get all upset about it, probably because it disagrees with something not in your mind, but more in your heart. And, and then you subvert your mind uh, to your heart and, and miss out and make bad choices. Let, let, let's talk about... One of those reasons that I think that you you might be able to uh, debunk pretty well is the whole the chartalism of oh well government you know uses the U.S. dollar to collect taxes and that's how the U.S. dollar has demand for it and thus value and if Bitcoin doesn't have that then it's just going to be like this erratic sideshow. Uh, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, so I wrote a book called The Great Credit Contraction. It's creditcontraction.com. It's a it's free now, a free PDF. Anyone can go download it. I published the book the same week Bitcoin got released by Satoshi. And in the book, I said the great credit contraction has started, right? And in the book, I actually talk about the basically the regression theory of money and chartalism and how it is the market that determines what money is, not government policy. And so this idea that of chartalism, which really isn't very old anyways, it's like 100 years old. Uh, no, it like money boils up out of the market. And what we use as currency 
comes as a result of what the market has chosen as money. And so, and money and currency are not the same thing, or at least I try to make distinguishments between them in the book, which we don't necessarily have that type of precision in the writings of Mises or Rothbard. I've tried to make that distinction and that precision because I distinguish between money, money substitutes, uh, and then illusions, you know, things that aren't even defined like the dollar and the euro. Uh, do you want to get into the, the difference between money and currency as, as you see it? Yeah. So, I mean, it's very simple. Currency would just be the things that we use in ordinary day-to-day transactions. Uh, and, those, and, and currency could be money, it could be a money substitute, or it could be uh, an illusion. But we can, use, we can use things for currency that have no, I don't really like the word intrinsic value, um, but but I suppose, and th- this is actually where I made a contribution to monetary science because I was arguing with the gold bugs, and and it's with this, and and how I ca- tried to hone in on it was this intrinsic value is actually you know intrinsic value quote unquote it's where the the item or the asset is limited in amount by its internal characteristics as opposed to being limited in amount by external characteristics. And so gold and silver are limited in amount by the internal characteristics of the laws of chemistry. And Federal Reserve notes are limited in amount by counterfeiting laws. But that's external, right? It's not their internal characteristics. And then Bitcoin is limited in amount by the math and the cryptography and the algorithm. And so you know, that's where I kind of made a, my own unique contribution to our mountain of knowledge. Um, and it's, but yeah, so when we're dealing with money, like I put Bitcoin in the category of money, just like gold or silver. And then we have money substitutes, which would be, you know, gold certificates, for example, or gold warehouse receipts, which are redeemable for money. And then we would have illusions, which are like dollars. And we could actually have illusion substitutes too, I suppose, like a gift card certificate or something. So let's get into the controversy. Uh, are are lightning payments money substitutes or are they money proper? I I would say that they're they're similar to money substitutes, but they're different in the in the sense that they're trustless and you can you know close the channel and and take your bitcoins back and settle into the base layer. Uh, but they do function, but but they do have a similar function to these money substitutes, and and I very much agree with Nick Zabo. Uh, when when we're looking at you know Lightning Network being like the banknotes in the 1840s uh, that were redeemable for specie, and so, but but those banknotes are different because they're debt instruments and they have counterparty risk with the banks. Fractional reserve banking. Well, even if you had 100% reserves, you still are reliant on performance risk of the warehouse actually. Well, and actually give it to you. I mean, that's the big risk with performance risk. Whereas, so with Lightning Network, because you're crypto, you've got this in there cryptographically in the software code. Uh, you're not relying on the like you, you don't have. You're not exposed in terms of performance risk like you would be with a warehouse receipt. Uh, be, you know, distinguishing a warehouse receipt from. Uh, like a liability, you know, where you're a warehouse receipt where you're holding it in bailment. So title hasn't passed in any way other than like 
perhaps beneficially, kind of like a, a valet. You know, you give the valet your car, well, there's performance risk that the valet is going to bring your car back. Uh, but he could, you know, because he could steal it or whatever, because he's got possession of the actual car. But you don't really get possession of the actual bitcoins with Lightning Network to a third party in that in that sense. And I suppose, you know, if you want to if you want to try to confuse people, you would make the assertion you, you would try to confuse them in terms of the technology and how the technology actually works in order to cause, you know, asymmetric knowledge and information. And so you would you'd be like, oh, well, Lightning Network is using IOUs. And it's like, well, that's just not true in terms of the actual technical operation that's happening. So that I mean, that's just a lie. And so, like, why why would you want to say a lie like that? Are you being incompetent in terms of your technology or are you just being maliciously deceptive and fraudulent? Right. I mean, I, I think it, it it speaks to the heavily charged politics of this uh, scaling debate. And it's it's bizarre to me because if you'd asked me, like, what do you think is going to be the most controversial issue within the Bitcoin community? Like when I first was learning about Bitcoin, I wouldn't have guessed that it would be like this this little variable of one megabyte that people would be like th- throwing a shit fit over and deciding to create their own community and like spin off and go to a conference in Tokyo. Well, it, it's not it's not about the one megabyte versus the two megabyte. It's about the hard fork versus a soft fork. And when you do a hard fork, I mean, you're attacking somebody's monetary sovereignty directly because because you're you're trying to say that well you 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 have things that were defined this particular way and we're not going to honor that anymore as a community and and of course it's going to get very highly charged i mean you you have a bunch of very smart independent thinkers that basically have an fu attitude and now they have fu money and so of course it's going to be highly contentious when you try to attack their monetary sovereignty because they've staked out that territory and when we're dealing with politics, like it, I think it's completely fine to have a bunch of differing opinions and differing ideas and stuff like that. What I don't necessarily think is very helpful in the debate at all is to be fraudulent or deceptive and, and use any type of lies. You know, like if you're, if you're going to make an assertion that Lightning is using IOUs, well, as I explained, you're either incompetent or you're being malicious. And in either case, you're going to lose territory in the ideological war, because, like, why? If if you prove that you're incompetent, then why should people trust you? Because you don't understand anything that's going on. And if you're being deceptive or fraudulent, why should anybody even engage with you? Because the whole purpose of engaging in the marketplace of ideas is to you know hash out the best ideas. But if you're dealing with someone who is lying and being fraudulent then how can you even engage with them? You can't even do any science because you can't trust them in any type of a way. So, you know, this is a very, you know, it's a very interesting chessboard that we we play on and because it's all open source and everybody has access to all of the source code at all of the, all of the time. So you have to you have to deal in terms of persuasion because people run a full node. And if you don't run a full node, you're a second class Bitcoin citizen. And if you don't hold your private keys, you're a third class Bitcoin citizen, you know. And so you have to like when in if you're going to deal with people who are running full nodes, you have to you have to persuade 
that's the only way that you're going to get get stuff done because they choose what software they run and they got satellites that they download their 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 full their blockchain from and that means they don't even have to go through an isp i mean think of how not only is bitcoin is have the censorship resistance as the internet in terms of the actual underlying hardware but it's got even more because of these satellites so i mean like you're not going to be able to exert force to try and force your idea through and and you're not going to be able to and you can't exert force in the sense of deception or fraud uh, or lies because it's all open source and everybody gets to you know read and listen to podcasts and make their own decisions so you have to be open honest competent and you got to battle it out in the marketplace of ideas and if you if you're not willing to do that then you're just going to lose influence for the ideas that you're trying to get across. And I think the the best example of what you're describing is what happened with Segwit2x where you had a portion of the community, the business community that had made an agreement to do a hard fork and essentially uh, were collaborating with the miners to deprive one chain of hash rate in an attempt to like destabilize it, the market for it and eventually like try to shift the shelling point of Bitcoin to this new S2X coin uh, that that fell apart the moment it started getting traded in the futures market. And the miners saw, well, this isn't going to have much value. So if we mine this, this is going to be charity mining. And it's it's a new it's a new idea in, in Bitcoin of we're going to have miners that mine at a loss in the hopes of somehow crippling a different chain, uh, but it it quickly fell apart. Yeah, I think it's you know it's a good example of just you know you're, they're trying to take territory, right? They're trying to take network effects or territory, and hey the market is going to make its decisions. So how do you influence the market in, in making those decisions? And we can tell from the market caps and the transaction rates and, and all this stuff that, you know, that just has not been effective at persuading the market. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the market right now is saying that there's, and in fact, if you just look at SegWit transactions alone, I recently heard there's more SegWit transactions than there are Bcash transactions. I mean, there are more Dogecoin transactions than there are Bitcoin Cash transactions. I mean, it's it, it, it boggles my mind that Bcash actually has the market cap that it does because like why are it, it's obviously got some very strong hodlers of last resort, you know? They're putting up a great fight, but like, how long is that 0.11 ratio of Bcash to Bitcoin? How long is that exchange rate going to hold, or is it going to continue evaporating down to like 0.02, <laughs> or or point? Well, I guess that would go up, or is it, you know, is it going to go to 0.2, or is it going to go to 0.02, or even less? Uh, and when you look at the price of altcoins relative to Bitcoin, you know, that because that's the other big issue. What's your numerare? Uh, and is it dollars? Is it gold? Is it Bitcoin? Is it Bcash? Like, what's your numerare? And and that's a critical question for people to ask because that's you know how they're going to determine whether they actually had profits or not. <laughs> I think as far as the Bitcoin Bitcoin Cash uh, price ratio, you know, one thing one thing to remember is that network effects, uh, especially with money, are very much uh, exponential. 
And I don't know of too many, you know, new people. Of course, I'm in my own bubble. I think all of us have our own bubbles of of some sort. Um, but from my perspective, I don't see new people um, entering Bitcoin Cash um, because the the brand of Bitcoin is just so strong. In fact, uh, you know, maybe they should go with Bcash just because at least then when you search it, you'll get something you know distinct from from Bitcoin itself. Um, so when new people are coming in, even if they search Bitcoin Cash and come across Bitcoin, um, that that exponentially increases the network value of Bitcoin, uh, which has the opposite effect on Bcash uh, over time. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like if your protocol is so good and and you're going to be able to overcome Bitcoin and and your and your value proposition is so much better. Like, why would you even want to have Bitcoin in your name? It just shows so much weakness and like it, which. You know, I, I, I was actually talking with Roger last week, uh, Roger Bear, because he's switching a lot of Bitcoin.com to talking about B, uh, Bitcoin Cash. And it's just like, why, like, why do you even want to have Bitcoin in the name? You know, and and so, OK, so you got new people come in. Well, if they're buying it because they're under a, an under an impression that it's Bitcoin when it actually isn't. Are they really going to be hodlers of last resort? They're they're going to be uh, litigants of first resort. <laughs> you know, they're going to feel like they're defrauded. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I well, they they might feel like they're defrauded, but even if they don't I have mean, a legal case for it, but yeah, even though they don't have a legal case, but it, it gets back to my earlier earlier talk about the ideological foundation. I I want people to know exactly what they're buying and why they're buying it. I want them to I want them to be so well educated on what they're buying that they become a hodler of last resort. You know, I, I don't want there to, I, I don't care what the name of it actually is, like whether we call it Bitcoin or whether we call it Mooncoin or like, I don't really care. I, as long as they understand what they're buying and why they're buying it and they become a hodler of last resort, you know, which is a totally different way of approaching it than having something that's intentionally uh, confusingly similar in terms of name or or whatever. I mean, which one's going to be a much more solid foundation for creating a hodler of last resort? Uh, and that's really what your goal would be if you want to be successful at getting a large market cap and lots of usage and extending network effects and all of this stuff. So it just seems very counterproductive to me uh, to to have any type of confusion on a name. But hey, if if that's your strategy, like go for it, but like checkmate, right? Like you're you're just gonna keep losing pieces, and you're gonna keep losing territory, and you're gonna keep losing wealth uh, if you're keeping your own money in that thing. And so, you know, it's it, and 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 then <laughs> it it actually educates our new people in very profound ways and very useful ways, you know, because it helps. Yeah, because all these new people come in, well, it helps them understand the importance of running full nodes and holding private keys and verifying their own transactions so that they know that they actually received what they bought. You know, because I, I, I go read RBTC every now and then. And I was, you know, I love looking at the, you know, I, I love looking at the different arguments. And there's this argument about zero confirmation transactions. And it's like, man, if I don't trust a zero confirmation transaction, 
I mean, maybe I just have a different risk tolerance, but my view is if it's not in the blockchain with confirmations, it didn't happen, which means I don't have my Bitcoin, (laughs) which means I'm not a hodler of Bitcoin until it's in the blockchain. And so, you know, and, and I guess you can try to dance around that issue like so many different ways, but at the end of the day, like it's either in the blockchain or it's not like, it's very black and white. Like the blockchain either recognizes you as a hodler or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, and that's why it exists. And so like, I don't understand why anybody would try to persuade people that zero confirmation transactions are like risk-free. They're not risk-free. There's a ton of risk to them. Well, if you're saying if people really are, you know, able to learn these profound things, which I think, you know, it has given a great opportunity to teach it, then, you know, perhaps Roger Ver really is a Bitcoin Jesus for sacrificing himself to help everyone come closer to the true spirit of Bitcoin. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, I, ironically, ironically, it is sometimes our those things that challenge us the most are what really enable us to grow and really enable us to progress. And, and they can often have the exact opposite intention. You know, if people, you know, when people act in, in negative ways towards you, it only gives you the opportunity to exert your will and your agency in that much of a better way in terms of your own self-discipline and your own control over your mind and your emotions. And so it has the opposite effect of what you, what, what they actually want it to have, you know, like if somebody's trying to aggravate you or, or upset you or whatever, that just, that just gives you like, that just gives you a much better tool in terms of resistance to hone your mindfulness and your ability to concentrate and focus. Uh, you know, like say you were a sailor or a pilot. If you're sailing on glassy seas all the time, like how good are you really? You know, but if you can fly the plane in severe turbulence with ice outside in the mountains, totally in the clouds, you're good. You know, you're a freaking good pilot. And, and it's in that resistance, you know, and in that difficulty that we actually become better people and so uh, and become more competent and more skilled. So I don't know that it's necessarily his intention to make people so much more discerning and so much more structured in their thinking and so much more hard in their convictions as hodlers of last resort, whether it's a Bcash or a Bitcoin. But that's the effect which is, you know, at the end of the day, like, I think that's a very good effect. You know, it's a, it's a excellent way to help educate people. And those people who perform, who act well and make correct economic choices, they're going to have profits and they're going to get to enjoy them. Whereas the people who don't are going to have losses. And, and so the wealth is going to transfer and shift to the people who deserve it. Yeah. In, in that regard, I think that no one has taught me more about Bitcoin than Jeff Garzik last year. Uh, I, I didn't really, I hadn't, I, I no, but seriously, like I had not fully internalized the importance of running a full node and receiving and sending transactions with it, ideally receiving more than sending. Uh, and the, how just how crucial that is to maintaining your financial sovereignty and for keeping this system on the rails. Yeah. I like, 
hey, you know, I I don't necessarily agree with the with the method the method or the means that they've gone about doing it. I would to choose a totally different way, you know, I because I want people to know exactly what they're buying and why they're buying it. But you know, at the end of the day, we're the result is still very i think uh, i think we're getting very good results in a lot of ways in terms of educating people uh and i i suppose it could be very machiavellian on their side and that just conflicts with the way i like to run my own life and make my own choices and things like that but it's uh you know i guess to each their own and at the end of the day like bitcoin's about monetary sovereignty and that means that you have to have personal responsibility and like you can't whine and cry and complain like Bitcoin network does not have emotions towards you. <laughs> yeah. So um, we've talked a lot about Bitcoin, but obviously there's a lot going on around it. And uh, we went through like a big hype phase of Ethereum and all these ICOs. And uh, what, what are your thoughts on that area of quote unquote crypto? Uh, well, one, I think that we got severe regulatory uh, issues coming in that area. Um, we're probably going to end up going, you know, they'll meet in the middle somewhere. Uh, we'll probably need broker dealers and ATS, like legal structure, alternative trading system. Uh, I wouldn't want to be someone who has done an ICO <laughs> because, you know, there will probably be fines and jail time that's coming down the pipeline for a lot of these people. Um, but you know, that's just, uh, regulators are going to regulate and prosecutors are going to prosecute and, and especially when there's fraud or stuff like this involved, like, yeah, you know, those people should go to jail, you know, because they've defrauded people of money. And so, you know, I think that's kind of what we're looking at in terms of other developments in the space. I actually really like all these forks, um, there's a website, forkgen.tech, that makes it extremely easy to create your own Bitcoin fork, uh, fork the Bitcoin co code and change variables and stuff. And I love that the barrier uh, to entry on forking has been greatly reduced. And I think that just, I think that's great. Like, let's have a ton of these forks and currencies and everything like that. And all the better if it comes from. Yeah, so, you know, I think we will probably see regulators and prosecutors going after fraud in the ICO space. And then uh, I really like the ForkGen.tech website, which enable really lowers the barrier to entry for creating a fork of the Bitcoin software. And so, you know, let's have tons and tons of these forks. I mean, and I would love if they all have the market cap and liquidity depth that uh, Bcash has had. Uh, in terms of success, because, you know, I could then trade lots of uh, whatever the fork is for more Bitcoin. And that's just, I think that's just great, you know, to each their own. And there's also, you know, there is the distinct possibility that one of them may truly have a uh, interesting feature that actually makes us want to move over to that, in which case this would give us a, you know, a market of, of choices of blockchain features that we, we can choose from. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it from that perspective, basically it's a research and development lab that has economic calculation priced into it. So, you you know, instead of like allocating capital for R&D and hoping that you might build something successfully, you're able to see what the market determines to be 
useful and successful. And then we could take the best of those ideas and roll them back into Bitcoin, you know, so like Monero and ring signatures and bulletproofs and range proofs and all this stuff, snore signatures, like, Hey, it's great to like experiment with this stuff, run the code in these coins where you could have a large security incident or whatever and not compromise Bitcoin. And after it's been proven safe in the battlefield, just roll it into Bitcoin. You know, so like, I, I think it's great, you know, let's uh, all the better, you know, I, if anything, uh, B- Bcash has shown us and shows us, uh, gives us an environment or a laboratory where we could see the effect of these large blocks on network propagation and, and all this stuff, you know, now it's just a matter of actually having transactions. <laughs> Maybe the minor... I mean, why don't the miners just uh, start filling up their blocks to eight megabytes? Like, just fill up all the blocks just, you know, with transactions of themselves, uh, just so that we can see what will happen. You know, they've asserted that their network will be able to handle the strain. But prove it. Yeah, prove it, you know. I mean, I'm a, I'm a very big Bcash holder. I own lots of Bcash. I still do. And so, I mean, I would love to see absolutely full blocks on there. And the longer they go by not having completely full blocks, the the less incentivized I am to hold it because I'm just not sure on the security. And I would love to have it proven to me. And so, you know, if they're not going to if they're not going to prove it, like I, I have to peel out of that position into something that has proven itself to be safe and secure with Bitcoin. And so, you know, I think that's. You know, I think it's great. Like, you know, you want to make an assertion. You want to you want to say that your blockchain can do this or that. That's great. You know, prove it. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, I'd really like to see how long it takes to start syncing a full node from scratch when we have a year of eight megabyte blocks, you know, and what type of hardware it, it is required and how long it takes to sync it and and all that type of stuff. So, you, you know, just need your $20,000 computer. Well, I, I mean, well, that I mean, d- will it take a $20,000 computer or, or could we run it on a smaller computer? I mean, you know, these are the types of things I'd like to well, see. Maybe more if Craig Wright has this <laughs> Well, I mean, I'd like to see this stuff in the wild, you know, and I'd like to be able to see it actually in live production environment instead of just test environment, you know, and block propagation times and all the stuff. So, I mean... Okay, so we do a one-day stress test in live production environment. I mean, okay, that's kind of cool. But, I mean, let's do it for like six months with eight megabyte blocks. You know, like, like I'd like to see that. And let's craft some optimally malicious transactions in terms of how we use the UTXO sets and the verification times and stuff like that and see how that affects the all of these metrics too, you know. So, I mean, there's a lot that, that they could do to prove that they're a, a much more resilient, higher capacity blockchain than Bitcoin, you know, because if they're able to do that stuff, they can always go back and roll in SegWit if they wanted to. And then what's Bitcoin got over them, right? Uh, yeah, they should probably have done that from the beginning. But that from a code maintainability standpoint, because now they spend a lot of time trying to uh, backport code from Bitcoin Core while removing the SegWit specific stuff. If they're so good and if their developers are so awesome, why would they need to backport code? I mean, they should be writing the code that other people backport. And from from Bitcoin Core, I don't want to I don't want to use their code. <laughs> well, that's that's the fifth network effect of developers, right? Yeah. Like 
like, are you creating the code or are you backporting the code? Because if you're creating the code, you're leading the charge. And there's more reason for me to be a hodler of last resort of people who are leading the charge because it's safer. I'm also skeptical of the idea that lower transaction fees attract more hodlers. I That just doesn't map well in my mind. And like we saw that with the the price action last year where the price was going up, the transaction fees were going up as well. And it wasn't like it was deterring anyone because people were like, well, you know, I, I want to own Bitcoins. I, I don't care if it costs me $20 to send it to my Trezor wallet. Right. Well, I was on a I was on an interview with Phil Potter uh, from Bitfinex, and I raised a point that the increased transaction fees actually create permanent hodlers. And he was like, "Well, what do you mean by that?" And I was like, "Well, it has to do with the UTXOs, because if you have a UTXO that is, it costs more to move in terms of transaction fee than the economic value in the UTXO, then you've economically destroyed that UTXO." And, and so, and we saw that with Coinbase, they had like $4 million of basically economically destroyed UTXOs because of their incompetence in how they were handling change and stuff like that. And so, I mean, maybe they woke up and, and decided, oh, maybe we shouldn't be, maybe we should start doing SegWit and batching and all this stuff and consolidating so that we can recover that money. So, you know, transaction fees actually, uh, I... You know, I, I think transaction fees are actually very helpful because one, they can create permanent hodlers like that through, you know, how people manage their UTXO set. But on the other side, they they show how much people are actually willing to pay to use that blockchain. And I think that's a very important metric, you know, because, okay, we can do eight megabyte blocks, but like, who's going to pay? Like, how much are you willing to pay for block space? And, the, and when the market is able to determine that, we get economic calculation happening. And, and so the highest and best use is going to flow to, to based on how much these transaction fees cost. It's kind of like real estate. And I mean, do you want to own real estate in South Dakota or Southern California on the beach, right? And, and okay, so Bitcoin, if it's, if it's the, if it's the, best real estate, you know, if it's the urban core of New York, like that's going to be very valuable real estate and people are going to pay a lot of money for it. And that's going to be a function of all these network effects and the value that people derive from doing those transactions. And guess what? Maybe the highest and best use of Bitcoin isn't, you know, currency. Maybe it's, maybe it's anchoring into the blockchain, uh, hashes of Merkle trees of, of, Fortune 500 databases in order to harden those uh, in terms of the security, like giving a Bitcoin shell around it in terms of the immutability. Maybe that's a higher and better use. And maybe those Fortune 500 companies are willing to pay $50 a transaction every 10 minutes to get that type of security for their IT systems. Well, yeah, there, there's that, the, the time stamping feature, but then the the being an anchor for Lightning and being an anchor for these level two scaling solutions where now because of transaction fees, there is pressure to innovate and actually create something new rather than just fiddling with a variable and trying to you know double this, triple that. Right, because you're dealing with the price elasticity of demand for block size space, 
You know, I mean, that's a wonderful thing because then it, it starts changing a bunch of other human action and in ways that people are allocating capital and stuff. So, I mean, this idea that like low, tra- that low transaction fees and, and low transaction fees, another issue that it kind of raises is it increases the velocity of the money, which I don't necessarily know that we can, uh, we can assert that increasing the velocity of money is going to raise its price. Uh, Generally, it would lower it. Yeah, well, but we're dealing with equity-based assets here, not debt-based yeah. assets, and we're not dealing with with fractional reserve, you know, reserve ratios and stuff like that. And so, because because I do think that Lightning, by greatly increasing the speed uh, or the velocity of Bitcoin, I think we could see in, incredible increases in terms of demand for Bitcoin. Uh, which it you know which is usually not talked about too much in you know pricing of currencies and stuff is the it's demand for money or demand for currencies but I mean all this stuff is just fascinating because we get to do it in live production environment with billions of dollars at stake I mean this is great and it's censorship resistant so we we're actually getting to see what people really believe because they aren't feeling coerced in their decision making you you were talking about stress testing earlier. Well, this was Bitcoin uh, stress testing itself. Yeah, I mean, and whether that's because it had lots of actual organic transactions or because Bitmain is spamming the blockchain because it's part of the political debate or Coinbase or whoever is spamming the blockchain, at the end of the day, we're like it's we're getting we're getting price discovery, you know, and we're like this is a just a wonderful experiment. I think it was I think it was Greg Maxwell that um, sometime during the run up when when transaction fees were getting very high but things were still going had posted on the 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 one of the mailing lists about you know popping open a bottle of champagne because it was going that the fee market was working as uh, we thought it would. Yeah, I mean I put out a lot of tweets you know months and months uh, before and on a regular basis before he put out that. Uh, on the mailing list, you know, showing transaction fees and price and like, uh, and correlations between the two and, and all this type of stuff. And like, I mean, I think it's, I think it's great, you know, because at the end of the day, a hodler does not want to be uh, diluted. And as we lower the block reward, that decreases the rate of inflation, which affects the hodlers of last resort. And so hodlers would much prefer to have no inflation in the system. <laughs> and, and I think that's also, you know, not necessarily readily apparent to a lot of people that, hey, if you want to use this block size space, instead of having it subsidized through inflation by the hodlers, instead have it paid for by the people who are actually using it. So we remove aspects of moral hazard uh, that get introduced uh, with those other economic incentives. Right. So there, the risk is that if if blocks if there was no block size limit, and there you know for for whatever reason the block propagation wasn't an issue as much, so you got massive blocks and there's no constraint in the market, so the price of transactions goes to, you know to zero, and in that case, if transaction fees are zero, uh, then and the block reward is having every four years. Uh, we get into a situation where the hash rate is too low and the, sy- the system becomes insecure and we have to wait for far too long. We, you know, 
they say, oh, you got to wait for six confirmations. If the hash rate was too low, it might be 100 confirmations or 1,000 confirmations. Well, yeah, but I mean, but the hash rate is going to change on a regular basis. And we've seen from the halvings that the market pretty much prices it in to the mining capacity. But also, we have no idea how much security we actually need in terms of hash rate. I think the blockchain is probably very oversecured you know, because of like the type of attacks that can be run on it. But at the end of the day, if you're a hardware of last resort, how much security do you want? As much as possible, especially if the people, if, if other people are paying for it with transaction fees, right? So because it lowers the risk profile. I mean, the amount of electricity that's being consumed by these miners is just astronomical. And it's only going, it's only looking to increase. So, I mean, this is, like at the end of the day, you have to have a solid understanding of economics and the technology in order to really put all these pieces together and connect all the dots. Yeah, and uh, I think that you know we've we've had um, I don't think we've had a full frontal assault from inflationists yet of people saying you know the twenty one million cap is unfair. Uh, there are the early adopters have benefited from it unfairly and we need to dilute them out. And we haven't seen that explicitly stated. That that would be even more contingent than a block size increase, you know, and and that probably won't even come up, you know, at least for 10 or 20 years. And even if it does, like, I mean, the the. the there will be so many full nodes deployed and people relying on Bitcoin in so many different ways. I mean, Bitcoin already is hardening very quickly, like in terms of being able to do, even do soft forks. So, I mean, even being able to do hard forks, like, I don't know. I mean, Bitcoin is just becoming a, it's a force of nature already, kind of like gold is. And uh, yeah, nobody... <laughs> Like you can, you can influence it and you can maybe guide it and shape it a little bit through persuasion. But at the end of the day, we've got millions and millions of people who have billions and billions of dollars at stake with this thing. And so you have to deal in terms of persuasion with that. And like it, <laughs> good luck, like try, okay, so what are you going to do? You're going to hard fork to change the inflation limit? Well, like what have we done with, uh, Bcash, Bitcoin, Lightning Bitcoin, Bitcoin Private, uh, Bitcoin Faith, Bitcoin Pay, Bitcoin Top, Bitcoin Note. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but like, look at their charts, you know, look at, look at what's happened to their prices in terms of Bitcoin, United Bitcoin. I mean, so I, I don't know that the market really demands that as a feature and it, it also erodes at the confidence that hodlers of last resort would have in the in the protocol. So even if even if these inflationists would tr- want to make a frontal assault about that as an issue, I just don't even know how they'd even be successful with it. And that's going to be incredibly frustrating for them because you know in in the nineteenth century we had people you know crying about being nailed on a uh, cross of gold and all of right. this like. It's going to be that all over again, um, except that they, 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 there just won't be a political process for them to appeal to, uh, to, to coerce people into accepting their crank monetary schemes. Well, I mean, 
crank or just their different ideas. Yeah. You know, and like, oh, I guess your ideas are just not fit for purpose and they're just not being accepted by the market. Sorry. Like, what are you going to do? Like whine about it? I mean, there's 7 billion people on this planet. Like, okay, that's nice. Like you have an idea. Nobody thinks much of it. And we all go down our merry way, you know, because we can secure protection at a much lower cost now. Much to uh, Janet Yellen's uh, chagrin. Yeah, well, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people and, and resources have been allocated in over the last 500 years of the great credit expansion that in this great credit contraction, yeah, you know, it's like an iceberg flipping. There's going to just be, it, we're going to reorder how society operates and the economic incentives have changed and the capital is going to flow different ways and the and wealth is going to be transferred on a massive scale and all assets worldwide are going to be repriced if we change what the risk-free asset is or in other words which asset has the lowest risk profile and it's going to reprice everything and 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 it's going to do it outside of legal code so legal code is going to become a very large determinant factor in the value of assets that are under that particular jurisdiction, whether it's land or real estate or a factory or a business in a particular country or whatever. And all of this is going to get repriced. And if you don't have very solid legal code in terms of property rights, because that's what you're competing against or the property rights laid out by Bitcoin, then you have to build in a risk premium, kind of like I mean, what's the risk premium for Venezuela's uncertainty regarding their property rights? You know, and that reprices all the assets in Venezuela whenever, you know, we have change. So, I mean, it's, we're moving into a very interesting time and yeah, people are going to, they're, they're going to be winners and losers in the process. But what is very interesting about it is that it's all being done peacefully. It's all being done by persuasion. It's all being done out in the open. Everybody has access to all of the source code all of the time. And so if people miscalculate, at the end of the day, they have no one to blame but themselves. They could have shown up uh, in January of 2009 to you know, express their disinterest in the specific you know, 0.1 code uh, and its inflation <laughs> rate. They chose yeah. to wait. And, or, or, or they could have waited a couple years and they could have listened to me and shown up when it was a nickel or a quarter. You know, it's it's not like it's not like this has been done in secret. <laughs> Far from it. None of us will show up about it. So, uh, what do you see coming up in the immediate term uh, for 2018? What what excites you the most, and what do you see on the horizon? Well, I, I'm very excited about Lightning Network getting more deployment and getting out more. Uh, I'm, you know, when you look at the mayor multiple, uh, it's kind of humming along pretty low, actually, like 0.8, 0.9. Uh, Let, let's describe uh, what the mayor multiple is, because uh, this is something that Preston Pish uh, has been popularizing, and I think it's a really good metric. Yeah, so Preston, he runs the Investors Podcast, and he he named it and everything. I would not name something like this after me, <laughs> like whatever. And, but he made a website, mayormultiple.com, where he explains it. And it, it comes from just taking the current price divided by the 200-day moving average. And I use that as to help me understand a little bit of the technical analysis of where 
assets are in terms of their pricing. And so when it's really high, like 3.7 in December, it's overvalued. When it's really low, like 0.7 uh, in February, and then it's uh, undervalued. And so I use that as like entry and exit points. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a guide. So if I'm going to be a hot or of last resort, well, I want to buy it when it's cheap. So I get the most amount of it as possible uh, for whatever asset I'm trading. You know, so I, I like using this, especially with like the Bcash, uh, the Bcash to Bitcoin ratio, you know, and that way I'm able to extract maximum Satoshis from the from when I sell Bcash. Um, uh, maximum Bitcoin Satoshis in exchange for my Bcash. And uh, that way I take more territory on the Bitcoin blockchain and, and seed less territory on the Bcash blockchain. And that's really the way we can look at it uh, is, you know, we're, we're basically in a financial and economic war, not just between nation states, you know, with tariffs and trade wars and devaluations, but also between the individual and the state and between individual you know, individuals and individuals. And so like, I like to use the mayor multiple to seed the least amount of casualties in terms of like B cash or gold coins and acquire the most amount of troops, you know, or the most amount of territory like Bitcoin or whatever asset that I'm trading for. And, you know, so that's, that's a met, that's a metric that I use to help guide a little bit of my, uh, economic calculation and decisions for entry and exit uh, opportunities. Because to be honest, I don't really check the price every day. And I definitely don't check the Bitcoin news every day. <laughs> what, what, what gives me anxiety personally about trying to uh, like sell when things are a bit frothy to buy back in at a lower price is that uh, when I do that, I, I cede territory to the federal government because I pay taxes on those gains. And that that hurts. <laughs> well, yeah, but if you're dealing, if if you get an asset that you don't want uh, to necessarily hold, like Bcash, and you got it basically for Bite for no board. reason, yeah. then yeah, you're you're gonna pay twenty percent in capital gains, but you're gonna acquire more Bitcoin territory on the blockchain, you know. Yep. E even with paying, even with seeding that 20% to the federal government. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a pretty nasty check uh, in the next week or two uh, to the federal government. But I took lots of territory on the Bitcoin blockchain last year as a result of the fork. So, I mean, I'm happy as a clam because I have more Bitcoin Satoshis. In a way, it's Roger Veer writing that check. Yeah, which is kind of ironic, I suppose. Well, wh whether it's Roger or Gion or whoever was on the other side of the trade. And remember, the trade was done willingly. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not like, uh, well, I assume it was. I mean, I, I assume that I didn't sell it to somebody who didn't know what they were buying. But if they didn't, it's kind of their own fault. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like everybody makes their economic calculation and I'm just, I'm kind of, you know, I, I don't want to write a check to the federal government, but I will, you know, because like, I don't want to look over my shoulder and stuff, you know, and, and I'm largely, and I'm largely just a, I'm a long-term hodler. I don't, I don't really use Bitcoin for transactional purposes like Roger kind of 
tries to persuade people to. And one of the reasons is because I just don't want to have the record keeping burden uh, that comes associated with that. You know, like, okay, so because the the arguments like, oh, well, the Bitcoin transaction fees are too high to have all these, uh, you know, to be doing transactions. But like my transaction fees are already very high because I have to have all this record keeping uh, when it comes to transactions. So I just am a hodler. You know, it's very difficult to get me to actually want to do lots of Bitcoin transactions because of that. And unlike Roger, I haven't, you know, I haven't renounced citizenship or anything. And because I like, you know, I, I like to be in San Diego and, and some of these nice places. And I guess I'm willing to pay for it, especially when I get free, free cash that I can sell and pay taxes and then I can pay for all this stuff. You know, it's, it's the, the house that Bcash bought. It's the, the, the car that Bcash bought. It's, it's just great. I yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, I'm very grateful for the people on the other side of the Bcash trade, and I just wish they would have more conviction and have that exchange rate go up to one to one. You know, one Bcash for one Bitcoin. I would be, I would love to see that. You know, I, I would love to see Bcash being successful because whenever I need to buy something, I just sell some of it and I pay taxes. I mean, it's great. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on that note, uh, we're going to close it out. I think we're coming up onto like more than an hour of content. This was a lot of fun. I think that we covered a lot of really interesting economic and technical topics as well. And uh, I'm just, it warms my heart that on the noted podcast, we were talking about running a full node because that's like, that's why I named it the noted podcast. I think that's like, one of the most important things, uh, maybe like I should have called it like the HODL noted podcast or something, but yeah. Well, well, I, I completely agree with you. It's one, the most important thing is to hold your own private keys. And the second most important thing to do is to run your own full node. And that's how you claim and stake out your monetary sovereignty. So like you're either, you're, you're either sovereign or you're not. Thanks, Trace. That's the perfect uh, note to leave on. And uh, Michael, do you want to close it out for us? Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much, Trace, for coming on. Yep. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, we really appreciate this fantastic uh, discussion. Trace, where can people uh, contact you? Yeah. So uh, I have the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, www.bitcoin.kn, uh, where I interview a lot of top people in the space, and uh, Twitter at Trace Mayer. And, you know, eventually you'll run into find me there. My, I think my assistant's email is on the, the podcast website. So, yeah, there we go. Awesome. So, yeah, everyone follow Trace on Twitter. Sign up for his podcast as well. Since you're already listening to a podcast, obviously you're into it. Uh, and we'll, we hope to have you back on some point. Oh, yeah, anytime. Thanks, guys. Going to your book a little bit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, pick up. Going back to that first thought, standing up means voluntarily accepting the burden of being. Your nervous system responds in an entirely different manner when you face the demands of life voluntarily. You respond to a challenge instead of bracing for a catastrophe. You see the gold the dragon hoards instead of shrinking in terror from the all too real fact of the dragon. You step forward to Take your place in the dominance hierarchy and occupy your territory, manifesting your willingness to defend, expand, and transform it. 
To stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of life with eyes wide open. The reason I pulled that one out in particular is the feeling that you have as a soldier or as as a military person, the feeling that you have going on an offensive operation where let's say you're a bad guy and I'm gonna come and get you mm-hmm. at night. Well, first of all, you don't know, and I'm sneaking up on you, and I have all this power, right? I, I feel good about it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get you. Mm-hmm. The opposite of that is when I'm doing a convoy or I'm going on a patrol where now the bad guys are out there, they're waiting to attack me, and that is a defensive posture, and your attitude about that type of thing is bad. Now, we would train our guys that we, we made a specific point with my guys, I would say, look, when you're on patrol, we're on offense. Mm-hmm. We are scanning. We are looking to get the to get us to be standing up straight and to get the mentality of we want to do this and we're moving towards the target as opposed to we're being chased. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. It, 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 yeah, absolutely, that's a big deal. Yeah, and, and that's that's what would you say? That's an extreme example of what's necessary under normal conditions in life. So well, one of the things that happens if you're treating someone who has a phobia, say like agoraphobia, so they become afraid of virtually everything. Um, maybe they're afraid of an elevator. It's one of many fears. And so you think, well, and they're afraid of an elevator because they've actually gone in elevators and had panic attacks. So it's weird because what you do to cure them is to get them to go in elevators and you think well wait a second that's actually what caused the problem so how can getting them to do that again make it better and the answer is because they've gone in elevators their whole life right and yet they still become terrified so how can getting them to go in an elevator cure them for a long time people thought well you get them to relax while they were in the elevator and the pairing of the relaxation with being in the elevator taught them to not be afraid that was the first theory. But then people learned that, no, you could just get them to go in the elevator without having them relax, and it also worked. And eventually, psychologists sorted this out, and what they figured out was that voluntarily encountering something you're afraid of is not the same thing as running from it. Like, it's seriously not the same thing. So you say to the person, okay, you're afraid of the elevator. Let's, can you go look at an elevator? they usually say yes. And maybe they're so terrified because they're so far gone in their illness that they can't. You say, well, how about we look at a bunch of pictures of elevators? And it's like virtually everyone can do that. So we say, let's look at pictures of elevators till you're bored. That actually doesn't take very long because it's actually quite boring. So then the next thing would be, well, let's go. You have to have the person trust you. And so the rule is, look, we're going to do some things that are going to push you like competition, right. but you can stop whenever you want and we're not going to push you any farther than is good for you. And I'll stop anytime you want. I often practice with my clients, like I taught one client a while back to not be afraid of needles and he was afraid of needles. And I'll tell you what that <laughs> meant. He had dental surgery with no anesthesia. Oh. Right. Okay, so that gives you some level of what it's like to be afraid. It's like, I'll do the dental surgery, but you're not putting that needle in there. It's like, really? Wow. It's like, I'm no needles. <laughs> so, so I taught him how to not be afraid of, of needles, you know, and it, it didn't take very long. But the first thing I did, I said, I told him I was going to bring a needle into the office. And that was all I told him the first week is next week, I'm going to bring a needle in here and I'm going to keep it sheathed. And it's going to be sitting on a shelf, and that's where I'm going to put it. And when you come in here, you can look at it. And if you want me to put it away, then I'll put it away. It's under your control. And then, so he was okay with that. So he came in. I said, there's the needle. I said, you want to look at it? He said, no. He said, but can you? It's like, I'll look at it. So he looked at it. And then he said, look, like, I'm going to pick up the needle. And now what you're going to do is you're going to tell me to put it down. And I'm going to put it down. So I picked it up. And he got nervous, like, right away. And 
he said, will you put that down? I put it down right away. I said, we do that 10 times so that the bottom part of your nervous system actually knows that that's what's going to happen. He said, now, and then the next thing we'll do is we're going to practice you saying you've had enough and leaving the office. So I pick up the needle and he'd say, okay, so now you say you've had enough, I'm leaving. And so he said that and then I'd let him leave. We did that like 10 times so that he knew that he could just say he'd had enough and leave. So that meant he didn't have to be a prey animal, right? So we were getting him out of that mode. And it didn't take very long until, well, then I could bring the needle close to him. And I say, make sure you watch it. You can't pretend it's not there, right? I'll bring it close to him and touch it and touch him with the sheathed needle. So we did that a bunch. And then finally, I unsheathed it and I'd bring it close and he'd tolerate that or stop me. And then I'd touch him with that. And then the last part of it was that... Um, I put it under a piece of paper so he couldn't see it, and then I'd bring it close to him, right? Because that was, that was the unknown, right? Mm -hmm, you don't know yeah. what the hell's going on underneath the piece of paper. <laughs> but he got to the point where he could go and have a needle. It took him about, it was very brave of him to do this, because, well, what had happened, he got, what had happened to him is he had a very bad experience with the childhood dentist who held him to, down. I was about to say, yeah, where did down. this come oh, from? Oh, yeah, held him, six people held him down to give him a needle. It's mm. like, oh, no, it, wasn't, it wasn't so good. It had some long-term consequences. But see what happened. So when you, when you do that with people, you don't teach them to be less afraid. You teach them to be braver. Huh. That's different. And so, like, I had a client once, the doors opened on the elevator, and she looked in and she said, that's death. Like, that's a tomb. And I thought, wow, that's an amazing response. And her idea was she'd go in there, her heart rate would accelerate, she'd have a heart attack, and she'd die. So as far as she was concerned, walking in there was death, death, right? Okay, so for me, it was an elevator, but for her, it was death. It's like, okay, well, what do you do about your fear of death? Well, we're not getting rid of that. It's like, you know, and you could die in the elevator. You actually could. Probably you won't, but people do die in elevators. And her idea was that, well, if anyone has ever died in an elevator in the history of mankind, that's a good reason for me not to be in the elevator. It's like, fair enough, you know. And then why aren't you terrified of, out of your skull all the time? Because while you're wandering around, you might have a heart attack. Like that will probably, in fact, happen to you at some point. So why aren't you terrified of that at every moment? Well, that's the mystery. Well, so you treat people. And, and you see, with that client, what I eventually did with her is we went and watched an embalming. She was terrified of death, like date seriously. Night. Yeah, date <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times. Right, no kidding. But, you know, so you, get, you don't get less afraid. You get braver. That's better because there's plenty of things to be afraid of.